Well, this morning is Reformation Sunday, and so in light of that, we're not going to have a normal sermon as I would usually preach. Uh, Consider this more a biography and a Bible study, and you'll see why, because we'll be looking at several different verses. However, I would like to open by reading Psalm 124, verse 8. Hear now the word of the Lord. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Father, we ask that you would indeed help us now uh, to hear your word and to receive it. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it was October 31st, 1615, when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Thesis to the church door in Wittenberg, which launched what we call the Protestant Reformation. It wasn't his goal when he did it. He was simply trying to spark some debate. Um, they would have been written in the language of the scholars, but it was translated, and it caught on and caught fire, and the Reformation was begun. Um, this comes out of the German uh, tradition, and we're a German Reformed Church tradition, and so we especially appreciate a man named Martin Luther. However, as important as Martin Luther is to the Reformation, and we owe him a lot, this morning I want to focus on someone else that we consider uh, when we think of the Reformation. It comes to mind, and that is John Calvin. When I did my sabbatical at a previous church, I took the three months that you get for a sabbatical and studied the life, the times, the theology of Calvin. It was um, my first opportunity to do that. I didn't get much Calvin, unfortunately, in college um, or in seminary, but I was able to study, and it was fascinating, and you consider his life. Now, Calvin was only eight years old when Luther nailed the 95 Thesis. Sometimes I think we think they kind of hung out together. They didn't. Um, He never met Luther, although later he was exposed to his writings. Uh, Anyway, Calvin in 1532, 15 years after the Reformation began, at the age of 23 and after he graduated law school, we're told in one of his commentaries, I believe on the Psalm, that he experienced this conversion. Um, from Catholicism. It's not Roman Catholic Church. There wasn't the Roman Catholic Church per se then. It's Catholicism. And he switched to Protestantism. And it wouldn't be long after that decision that he would make his mark on the Reformation. In 1535, three years later, Calvin left Paris because he was persecution of Protestants and went to Basel where he worked on the translation of the Bible we come to know as the Geneva Bible. It was the most popular translation in France for 200 years. And then at the ripe old age of 26, Calvin began to summarize the doctrines of the Reformation or the doctrines of Scripture. This is when he began the first edition of his famous work, uh, The Institutes of the Christian Religion a book really with no exaggeration shaped the world. Calvin understood, as did Luther, that if their reforms in the church were going to stick, if they were going to have a lasting impact, the the Reformation must be grounded in sound biblical doctrine. 
Now, those doctrines came, came to be known as the summary of the solas of the Reformation, Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Uh, that was the summary of them. There was more to it. Uh, but that's what the Reformation was. It was a theological Reformation. Now, Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion cover the whole gamut of biblical theology, biblical theological teaching, the truth is this, if I could make a recommendation, if you're interested, take your Bible, take Calvin's Institute, read them both, and then do it again and again and again and again. It really will shape your thinking and living out the faith. It's really all you need. There's a lot of books out there, a lot of great ones, but I would say that if you had the Institutes and you had your Bible, that is what you could live off of spiritually, as it were. See, Calvin didn't write his institutes in order to be just a simple doctrinal study, in order to fill your brain with doctrine. It was doctrine for life. He, he, he wanted to not only fill your head with truth, he wanted it to seep down into your heart. Uh, an issue forth in love for God and neighbor and, and a passion for the gospel. This is why he didn't call it the sum of Christian theology, but the sum of piety. And by piety, he simply meant the practice of the Christian faith, living for God. Calvin knew. He understood. And remember, Calvin was just not uh, an ivory league, uh, you know, kind of a guy in a tower up there studying, although that's what, if you read his life, he wanted to be. He was a pastor, and he understood that if we're going to live right before God, we have to think right before God. And he understood that correct doctrine is the foundation of righteous living. Well, in 1543, at the age of 34, uh, the Reformation is spreading. And Calvin is asked by some friends and colleagues if he would write a, a treatise justifying to the king of the Holy Roman Empire, Charles V, why the Reformation was necessary. And it's not likely that our president anytime soon is going to say, hey guys, can you write a, a treatise on why the church is necessary? That was a little different times back then. Um, and this treatise was important for establishing it in the empire, and he entitled it on the necessity of reforming the church. Why did we have to change what was going on at the time? And Calvin shares two main reasons why. Why the Reformation was necessary. Now, if I were to ask you, what do you think Calvin said first? You would probably point out that it was necessary because of the doctrine of salvation. Because specifically, that is, the doctrine of justification uh, by faith and grace alone. And you would be correct. Calvin spends about half of the treatise dealing with the issue of justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. But, and this may come as a surprise, that wasn't the first reason Calvin gave for the necessity of the Reformation. See, Calvin says the first reason that it was necessary to reform the church is because of worship. Worship. This is what he wrote. He said, the substance of Christianity can be understood under two main headings. Here it is. Everything in the Christian life, everything flows from these two points. Uh, they occupy the principal place. First, 
a knowledge of the mode in which God is duly worshipped, and second, of the source from which salvation is to be obtained. Now, when you think about that, it's pretty remarkable. Calvin put worship first and salvation second. He says both are important, but he puts one first. He, he ranks worship as first importance. Why? And he answers by saying that salvation is a means to an end. He says, but worship is the end itself. See, salvation is a means to an end, but for Calvin, worship was not a means to an end. Worship wasn't a means to evangelize. Worship wasn't a means for mission. Worship wasn't a means for entertainment. Worship was an end in itself. Worship wasn't to be arranged for pragmatic considerations. It it was to be determined by theological principles derived from Scripture. See, for Calvin and the Reformers, the most basic realities of the Christian life were involved in our worship. And I'm speaking of corporate worship here. Why? Because in worship, God promises to meet his people and bless them. See, for Calvin, worship is vitally important because it's the key meeting place of God and his people. This is what he says. Let us know and be fully persuaded that whatever the faithful who worship him purely and in due form according to the appointment of his word are assembled together to engage in the solemn acts of religious worship, God is graciously present and presides in the midst of them. Now, if I were to write that, you see his flowery wording, I would have said, if we worship the way God wants in his word, he'll meet with us. Well, Calvin says it with, that, with, with his scholarly voice. Only when we follow what God has commanded us do we truly worship him and render obedience to his word. Then he says this. God disapproves of all modes of worship not expressly sanctioned by his word. Now, this would have been controversial in his time. Why? Because, see, in the medieval church, corporate worship was corrupted. And they were venerating relics. They were praying to the saints in worship and the like. See, when we worship God in a way that God has not prescribed in his word, when we worship God after the fashion of our own inventions, the way we think, our own desires, our own wisdom, what we are actually doing, Calvin says, is committing idolatry. And so for Calvin, that was the fundamental reason. That was the primary reason for the Reformation, why it was necessary, because idolatry had crept into the church. And for Calvin, all modes of worship not expressly sanctioned by his word is idol worship. God disapproves of it. Let that sink in, uh, what he says. He says, God disapproves of it. Now, Calvin's approach to worship later came to be known as the regulative principle. If you've read our confession, that's what's in our confession. It's how we must worship. This is what our confession says. The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself 
and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in his holy scriptures. What he's saying and what our confession is saying is that scripture must regulate how we have a worship service. We're speaking of corporate worship here. And we must worship explicitly the way it's commanded to be worshiped in Scripture. Those elements of worship that are spelled out in the Word of God must be included. For example, we have the invocation, we have a benediction, there's confession, there's prayer, there's Scripture reading, there's singing praise, there's offering, the, the sermon. Those are all elements of worship. They must be included. That's how God has prescribed us to worship. Um, And the reason we include those is not because we sat down and said, you know what, I think people would really be excited if we, we read a confession. I mean, they're sitting home all week. They just can't wait to come together and say, let's read the confession. No, we, we do those things because they are sanctioned in the Word of God. And so uh, we include them. Now, it can vary. The circumstances make things vary. Our church may read the Lord's Prayer as part of our, our element of worship prayer. But you don't have to do that. That's a circumstance. That's how we do it. You don't have to have a written-out confession of, of sin, but that's how we choose to do it or have chosen to do it. Other people are silent when they confess, but confession is there. The point is only what God has sanctioned is an acceptable element of worship. That's what Calvin taught. That's what the, the, uh, the Westminster Confession teaches. But the more important question, obviously, is what does the Scripture teach? I mean, it's great that Calvin teaches it, and he's pretty smart, and, and the Westminster divines were wonderful people, but does the Scripture teach that God disapproves of all other modes of worship not expressly sanctioned by his word? Now, let me be clear. Notice what he's saying and what the confession is saying. They are not saying anything is permissible in worship unless it is forbidden, You know, nowhere in Scripture does it say not to do this so I can do it. That's not what they're saying. Uh, That's actually the Lutheran view. Everything in Scripture, I mean, everything that's not forbidden is, is, is allowed in worship. They are saying, Calvin and the Confession, only that which the Scripture sanctions is permitted in corporate worship. In the public worship of God, Specific biblical requirements are made, and we're not free to ignore them or to add to them. And so, is that biblical is the question. And so what we're going to do now is switch from the biography and go to the Bible study. And we're going to look at both the Old and New Testament, and we're going to do this fairly quickly. Obviously, you know my answer to this question. I'm a pastor in a Reformed Presbyterian church that holds to the Western Confession. But let's see what the Scripture has to say. Let's begin with Genesis chapter 4. And we read here of the worship of Cain and Abel. 
Uh, and, and this is what we read, and we're picking up in verse 3. In the case of time, Cain brought the, to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. What was the offering for? It was an act of worship. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And so they both, both came before God to worship, and they made an offering. And then we read, And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. And so the passage tells us that Cain's worship was rejected by God, while Abel's was accepted. Now there's debate over why. Some people believe it's because Cain didn't bring a blood sacrifice, as Abel did. Other people believe it's because Cain wasn't doing it by faith or sincere. He wasn't being sincere in his worship. In either case, the answer to that, we'll save that for another time. The point is, whatever the reason that God rejected Cain's offering, we still learn God accepts some worship while rejecting other worship. And so there's an example very early in the Scriptures. Well, then we turn to Exodus, and we have the Ten Commandments. We're not going to go through every book of the Old Testament. Don't worry. <laughs> we have the, four, uh, the first four commandments. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven or or above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. You're not to worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the Lord's name in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And then the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. See, in the first commandment, have no other gods before me, God declares himself to be the only true God. He is the only one we ought to worship. In the second commandment, make no graven images. And in the third commandment, do not use the Lord's name in vain. He, he, he shows us the kind of worship which honors him. Uh, we can't make images and, and then seek to worship them or, or misuse his name when we misuse his name in worship. And then in the fourth commandment, he tells us when we worship on the Lord's appointed day. We're talking about corporate worship here. And, and so the commandments, the first four commandments tell us who we worship how we worship, and when we worship. And we're focusing, obviously, on the how we worship. God prescribes in the commandments how and how not to worship him. And so that's an example of this, this theme. Third, uh, remember the construction of the tabernacle at the time of Moses. Exodus 25 and 26, we're given these painstakingly uh, details on how the tabernacle, the, what was the tabernacle, the place of worship was to be constructed. And, and we read, everything is to be made according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain, Exodus 25, 40. Every aspect of the construction of the tabernacle was prescribed by God, every aspect. And nothing was left for man to imagine. They didn't make any decisions. God laid it out. And this is reinforced in Exodus 39. We read about the making of the priestly garments, which must be worn before they approach God. Details are there. 
and made and were told as the Lord commanded Moses. In fact, that is told us in verse 1. As the Lord commanded Moses, do this. Verse 5, verse 7, verse 21, 26, 29, 31, 32, 42, and 43. Do you think he's trying to point something out there? As the Lord commanded. And this was true of the temple as well. It wasn't left to man's imagination to, to build the temple. We read that David gave Solomon, his son, the pattern of the porch of the temple, its buildings, its storehouses, its upper rooms, its inner rooms, and the room of the mercy seat. And we're told he gave him the plans all that the Spirit had put in his mind, 1 Chronicles 18, 12. Again, nothing left to his own imagination. All this, David said, I have been writing from the hand of the Lord upon me, and he gave me understanding in all the details of the plan. Now, why is that so important? Why? Because because God may not be worshipped in any way other than the way he commanded. And all these things in the tabernacle and temple were part of the worship of God. And so the construction of the tabernacle and the temple, the garments that the priest wore, all having to do with worship of God, and God commanded it himself. Well, the book of Leviticus, there we find the story of Nadab and Abihu. You may remember that. They're the sons of Aaron, the priest. And we're told that they died, and this is what we're told, when fire went out from the Lord and devoured them. Well, what caused that? I mean, they must have been doing something incredibly atrocious for God to consume them that way. And we're told they offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded. They were doing a form of worship God had not commanded. They weren't out murdering. Um, It does not say this happened because they were not sincere or that they, they lack good intentions. No, it says that they did it and they were wrong because God had not spelled it out. It doesn't even say that it was forbidden. It just says that God didn't tell them to do it. That God wanted them to do it. He would have included it. He didn't. And so we see that God, not whatever God has not commanded, is not to be included in worship. It's just another example. Here's the last one. Uh, the story of Uzzah. You may know the story. It's a pretty popular one. The Israelites are transporting the Ark of the Covenant. And they were given instructions on how they were to carry the Ark. And as they're going along, all of a sudden the Ark tips over and it's about to fall into the mud. And what what happens? Well, what would you do? You'd reach out your hand and try to keep it from falling in the mud. That's what Uzzah did. And this is what we're told. He reached it out and God struck him dead immediately. And you think, well, that's a little, uh, you know, getting carried away there. I mean, he was just trying to help. He was just being sincere. He was just trying to help. Well, King David tells us what went wrong. Because you did not carry it the first time, the ark, the Lord our God broke it out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord, that the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. Uzzah was carrying it. When he saw it falling, he reached out his hand. R.C. Sproul says something that everybody that studied R.C. Sproul remembers. He said that the problem with Uzzah is he thought his hand was more holy than the mud. 
and he was wrong. And so you see, he, he was not following according. He wasn't seeking according. He wasn't worshiping according to the rule, according to the word of the Lord. He failed to limit himself to what God had expressly commanded. See, the only thing that pleases God in worship is what God has commanded in worship. And there are many more examples. You could go through 1 Kings 12, King Jeroboam, King Uzziah, uh, or maybe King Ahaz. You remember that story? They, they wanted to worship, and they worshiped the Lord by killing children. And you say, well, God obviously didn't accept that. That is true. He didn't accept that. But the, the prophet Jeremiah tells us why. Well, obviously, we know why, because killing children is wrong. And he says, why? And they have built the high places. Why? To burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command. The first and foremost, the issue, God didn't command it. Obviously, he didn't command it. He didn't command the burning of children. Nor did it come into my mind. How could he make it any clearer? Worship, which was not commanded by God, is therefore forbidden. But that's the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God, you know, people say, what about the new? Well, listen to what Jesus says. He denounced the scribes and the Pharisees because they had a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe their own traditions. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. I'm sure they were pretty offended by this. These are the religious leaders. But that's not what matters. What matters is that God was offended. And according to Jesus, there were two reasons God was offended. First, they were setting aside the commands of of God. That's one reason. But second, they were diligent in observing what God had not commanded them in their worship. It was all man-made tradition, even traditions, highly regarded traditions among men, highly esteemed or offensive to God unless they are what he has commanded. And so that's one example. Another example in the life of Jesus found in John 4, you know the story of Christ and the Samaritan woman. Jesus said what? You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, when Jesus says, you you Samaritans worship what you do not know, he is saying, and here's what Calvin, how he explains it, all so-called good intentions are struck by this thunderbolt which tells us that men could do nothing but err when they are guided by their own opinion without the word or command of God. Those who want to worship the true God acceptably must do it in spirit and in truth because that, Calvin says, and only that, is what he has commanded. And so Jesus tells us this. The apostle Paul does. We, we learn of the importance of Scripture in 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture, remember, is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. 
That's the foundational verse for sola scriptura, scripture alone, as our authority. That the Holy Scriptures, the Old and New Testament, are inspired word of God. That they're central to everything. It's the only infallible rule uh, for our faith and practice. How we're to live out the faith is found in the word of God. Now, this implies everything that we need to know to live the Christian faith is included here. That's what Paul is saying. Well, worship is one of those things. And so Scripture is sufficient to teach us how to worship. That's one way. We can look at other verses as well. How about the book of Hebrews? Let us offer to God acceptable worship. What's that imply? That there's unacceptable worship. With reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Ask Uzzah. Uh, Let us offer to God acceptable worship. Acceptable worship. When Hebrews 12 says acceptable worship, it means worship that is first and foremost, remember, acceptable to God. Not to you. Not, Not to me. It has nothing to do with man. Ultimately, it doesn't matter what we like. It doesn't matter what we want to have in the worship service. It doesn't matter what we would want to include, unless it's obviously biblical, so I'm not saying that. It matters what God wants. Why? Because that's who we're worshiping. He's the object of our worship. We don't go around taking polls in the community and seeing what they like for church services and then add it to the church service to make them happy. We're not worshiping them. We're worshiping the one true God. And so any worship that is man-centered or man-focused is unacceptable worship. See, God, you may be surprised, you know, God takes the worship of himself very seriously. Uh, And so we have the Old Testament testimony. We have Jesus' testimony. We have have Hebrews and the Apostle Paul and, and, and then the implication that Scripture alone is our authority for faith and practice. And so there you have it. The word of God must have the final say in how we worship. Now, you do understand when I said all these things, it's not talking about worship, daily worship. Uh, Obviously, I'm speaking of corporate worship. That's not all we can do to worship God. You can worship God when you're at work. In fact, you are. If you're working um, and being diligent in your work and giving your time, you're glorifying God. That's worship to God. When you show love to your spouse, when, when, when you, and, and you, when you raise up your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, that's worship. It's glorifying to God. It's worship. You can cut your lawn and worship God by cutting your lawn. Uh, when you play golf, you can worship God. Have you ever heard of somebody say, well, I, I go to church. I can worship God on the golf course. Yes, you can. But that's not the only place you're supposed to worship And you shouldn't bring the golf clubs into the worship service. It's a way of glorifying God. Let's all bring our golf clubs. Oh, we could all cut the lawn. That's not what is being said. Obviously, all those things bring glory to God. The point being made here is that to do that on Sunday morning would be wrong because that's not what God has said to do in his word. And we gather as the body of Christ to praise and glorify and honor our Lord who sits on the throne. We must do that which he has regulated and told us to do in his word for him to be pleased by it. And so by way of summary, we can say that although Calvin is not our standard 
We know that. Even the Reformation, what is right and wrong when it comes to worship, and, and, and we, don't, we know they don't tell us that, but the Word does, and we must come to the conclusion. It's clear that Scripture must regulate how we worship, that God disapproves of all modes of worship not expressly sanctioned by his word. This is why our worship service here, as my previous worship service was, and and most PCA churches, not all, unfortunately, but most PCA churches, uh, the whole service is focused on the word of God. It's focused on God and his word. See, the Word of God not only directs our worship, how we're to do it, it's also the content of our worship. Think about it this way. We sing the Word, we read the Word, we pray the Word, we confess the Word, we preach the Word, and and you see the Word in the sacraments. And so we must be obedient to the Word of God. See, when we do this, one, one writer says, when we do this, we've got to understand that brings us liberty. Oh, it seems so stifling to just follow the word and do what it says. No, it brings us liberty. Everything else is legalism. Everything else is bondage. It's the bondage of men telling us you should do this or have that. Regulative principle frees us from the devices of men's imaginations to worship in a manner, says one writer, that is pleasing to God and brings him delight. Remember, if anything else, remember, he is the object of our worship. Well, let me close. Let me return to the verse I read when I opened. You know, like I said, normally in a sermon uh, on any given Sunday, if I open with a verse, we're going to talk about that whole verse the whole way through. Well, let me close with this verse. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. That is the verse that Calvin opened his worship service with every week. See, when we gather... For worship, we gather with one purpose, and that is to what? Meet our God. And we gather to praise and worship and honor him for who he is, the name of the Lord, and what he has done, maker of heaven and earth. That's what Calvin included. We, we praise him because our help comes from the one who is just and holy and perfect and sovereign. We praise him because our help comes from the one who's infinite and eternal and unchangeable in his being. We praise him because our help comes from the one who is omnipotent and, and, and omniscient and omnipresent. He, he's all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-present. We praise him because our help comes the one who is gracious and merciful and loving and caring and compassionate and concerned with our well-being. We praise him because he is a consuming fire and worthy of all praise. Think about that, beloved. He has helped us in our past by saving us by the, from the penalty of our sin through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. He's actually helping us now in the present by giving us of his Holy Spirit that we may overcome the power of sin in our lives and, and live for him, for his glory. And he will help us in the future when Jesus returns to take us home, to spend eternity with him, worshiping him, where there'll be no more tears, And there'll be no more pain. And there'll be no more death. And so we look to the past 
and testify that the Lord is our helper. Praise be the name of the Lord. And we look to the present and testify that the Lord is our helper. Praise be the name of the Lord. And we look to the future. And we look for that day when Jesus will come back for his own and and he'll be our helper forever. Praise be the name of the Lord. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And so the most important thing you'll do this week, the most important thing you will do this week is what we have been doing here this morning. Worshiping God with the body of Christ for who he is and what he has done. And to do that in a manner God accepts is the main reason why the Reformation was necessary. That was the main reason. It's the main reason why we need a Reformation today. If you look around us, and we're not going to focus on others, but you look around us and you see corruption in worship everywhere because they don't even include the basic elements. We're not talking about if you have an organ or a piano. We're, that, that's, that's beside the point, although I'll make an argument for both of those instruments being the main instrument. But that's besides the point. The point is people aren't praying in worship. They're not listening to the preach word in worship. They're not confessing in worship. And Scripture tells us God delights when we do those things. And so the most important thing you'll do this week is worship the Lord in corporate worship the way he has prescribed. And we need to do that. We need to be diligent as a church. And that's my point. Not to point out the errors that I think are in others, but to be sure that God will guard our hearts that we would continue to worship him according to his word in spirit and in truth. And in so doing, he, he, will receive all the glory. Soli Deo Gloria. To God be the glory alone. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we humbly submit to you and ask that your spirit would guide us and direct us that that when we gather to worship you, that we would do it according to your word, according to your rule, according to your command, that our hearts would be engaged, that our minds would be engaged, and that you would receive all the glory and honor and praise, and that out of this service, that we would go into this world glorifying you in all that we say and do. In Christ's name, amen.